It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Hello. Hello. So I, I wanted to address uh, some of the criticism we've had, uh, me specifically, uh, although there's been some criticism of Ed, which we'll come on to, from the, from the video we made last week to promote the electric car episode, which was basically me getting in the back of Ed's car as if he was an Uber driver and, and him, him driving around the block a little bit. And quite a few people came at me on social media for not wearing a seatbelt. Yes. You can see I try and stretch it across myself, right, but it okay, won't quite okay. go. Do you ever have that thing where you are in the back of a taxi or something and you worry that if you put the seatbelt on too far into the journey they are going to think that it's in some way a criticism of their driving <laughs> you're such an empathetic person I mean it's so I felt that this week because of when we recorded something and uh, and I sort of texted you to say you are the, you're definitely the most empathetic person I know I mean it doesn't occur to well, you well I think it might vaguely occur to me but it's so interesting I'm getting myself in knots about this sort of stuff all the time so anyway apologies I, uh, it was yeah. really logistical and I feel bad about yeah I'm being a bad role model yeah. I'm worried that I'll go to jail and okay. that'll be the end of the podcast yeah. and, and then I, I received a message from my yeah. friend Craig who is a, a television screenwriter and director and uh, he, he sent me a text message saying i just watched you and ed in the car yeah. quite possibly the worst acting i've seen since victor kayam if you can what, what did he say i bought the company i liked it so <laughs> much right. i bought the company yeah he said it's like watching thunderbirds he says if you're still doing them in winter i'll send you some cuprinol what's cuprinol you know the stuff for treating wood so, is that true? I thought it was quite good. I thought, I thought all right. Well, actually, I thought the good. Boris Johnson one was better. Yeah, yeah, this was... Uh, painting Ed, the bus. It's a very good impersonation. Yeah. You know, between that, you're Tony Blair, you're Gordon Brown. I mean, I really think... You, you think I could be the new Rory a, Bremner? A, a, a summer season in Blackpool right. beckons for okay. you. But, okay. yeah. As a sort of supporting act. Yes, probably. yeah, yeah. You wouldn't be the headliner. No, 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 no. absolutely not. Yeah. So what are we talking about this week? This then? week, we're talking about women in sport. Last night was the final of the Women's World Cup, but because we're recording this before Sunday, we don't know which way it went. But it's been a big moment for women's sport in the UK. England got to the semi-finals, the Lionesses. Uh, 11.7 million people saw the semi-final against the US. Unfortunately, uh, England lost, but it was the largest ever TV audience for women's football in the UK. And that is definitely progress because it's, up till 1971, the FA banned women's teams from using their football grounds. At professional level, women's sports still gets nowhere near as much coverage and there's a big pay gap. At grassroots level, there's a large gender gap in participation in exercise and sport. And we're going to be talking about the United States where there's a law called Title IX, which requires equal resources for men's and women's sports in education. And that might be a clue why women's soccer is so successful in the United States. It's really interesting that a legal change made in 1972 could have that effect. And we're going to be talking about what we can learn from the US and what else needs to be done here to achieve greater gender equality in sport. And I think this really matters because 
I think it's all, you know, it matters for girls and women having equal opportunities in sport, but I think it also matters for the kind of wider kind of gendered nature of our society. I think this World Cup has made a big difference. Definitely. I, I got in a black cab the other day and the driver said, did you see the game? To- yes. Are you watching the game tonight or whatever? Yeah. And I thought, you know, the, this this feels like change. And in fact, in my own house... Uh, I was flicking through the channels. It was the the uh, Sweden versus Never- Netherlands game. I was watching it with my wife, and I said, "Oh, we should just see if it goes to penalties." And she said, "You would never watch this if it, if it was men's football. Interesting. You were just doing it to prove what a good feminist you are." Interesting. Yeah. So after all that, we are joined by comedian Robin Morgan with some ideas which could be reasons to be cheerful. What is your reason to be cheerful this well, week? Well, I was on the train and I went to the buffet car, and another bloke was coming to the buffet car and he said oh you're ordering a bacon sandwich and i was sort of not very amused by that. come on never not funny uh, but it must never get old but for you. i then got into a discussion with him and he's a really fascinating bloke uh his name's alex harris and he is the regional secretary for a union called the united road transport union and believe it or not this union was first the united carters association as in people who worked on horses and uh, and Carl. Anyway, he organises lorry drivers. He was himself a lorry driver. And we had an absolutely fascinating conversation. And I, I thought what was really interesting about it was that, it, you know, it's not an easy area to organise in um, because it's quite sort of sole tradery. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Not sole tradery, but, you know, it's quite individual. Isolated. Yeah, isolated. Yeah. Um, and uh, I just thought, you know, it just reminds you there are lots and lots, so many people across the country who just try and make lives better for people who you know, don't have much kind of help behind them and are, you know, face quite big and quite sort of difficult sometimes employers. Do you think he could arrange it for us to go in the secret lorry driver's bit at the motorway services? What is the secret lorry driver's bit? I don't know, because you're not allowed in there unless you're a lorry driver. Really? They've got their own sort of VIP area. Are you serious? Yeah, and I think he could be our ticket into there. You got it. What's your reason to be cheerful? My reason to be cheerful is that I went to Hebden Bridge. Now, we went and did the uh, the show from Hebden Bridge a year ago, you might remember. Yes. Um, and, and you went to Adrift. I did my other podcast, Adrift, yes. which is sort of a humour podcast around social awkwardness. Yes. We went and did a live show in Hebden Bridge at the same venue, the Trades Club, which is just this yes. great place. Because it is a podcast about social awkwardness, the audience it attracts are sort of self-confessed socially awkward people. So I got a huge laugh by going on stage at the beginning and saying, uh, OK, we want to start by if we can all take it in turns to stand up and say something about yourself. Did they all do it? No, of course not. That oh. was the joke. Like they, they are the least likely people in the world to do something like that. But we, uh, we had fun. It was, it was good and it was great to go back we to We love Bridge. Hebden Bridge, don't we? Yeah, it's a really special place. And speaking of live shows, our next yeah. live date is uh, inching centimetering yeah. i prefer to be metric uh centimetering ever closer we are going to be at the grand in clapham in south london we'd love for you to come along it's going to be a sunday evening it one could be our hundredth episode i mean we, we've got a hundredth episode coming up should this be the special one yeah i think it can, it's going to be special it's regardless of whether it's hundredth yeah 98 please, or I, I don't want to be just like alone in clapham with jeff so thanks ed can you buy tickets please <laughs> You're listening to Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. I'm delighted to say that we are now joined on the line by Baroness Sue Campbell, Director of Women's Football at the Football Association. Sue was Chairperson of UK Sport from 2003-2013. I had the pleasure of meeting Sue during the 2012 Olympics. Sue, look, let me just say, first of all, I know you'll be incredibly disappointed by what happened in the semi-final, but I think 
we we've just been talking the the it's it's really had an amazing effect here i think it has been a transformative thing and and we're all incredibly proud of the lionesses well that's great thank you for that and and you know we we don't underestimate that i think the problem when you're a performance athlete though is that all of that is great but it's not what you came out here to do but i from a bigger perspective look at it and think my goodness what an impact it's all had and uh you know, the challenge of that now for me at the FA is, is to turn that inspiration and that interest into something that's sustainable and uh, long term. And, and what are the ideas for doing that? How do you see that going? Well, at one end, um, you know, we're, we're going to try, uh, we're going to be working in 6,000 schools from September trying to get girls football Great. Um, uh, available to girls of all ages, um, right through primary and secondary um just to give them an experience of the game and an opportunity to play right now a little boy of that of primary school age would definitely be playing football in schools whereas with girls it's a bit of a postcode lottery and it's a very small percentage that are getting an opportunity and we think it's important that you know it's our national game that every girl gets a chance to be introduced to it and hopefully enjoy it not necessarily ending up being a lioness but enjoys it and and gets involved in it so that's kind of trying to get the foundations of, you know, inspiration into participation. We're then doing a huge amount of work on coach development, trying to improve the coaching, both men and women working in the women's game. And then I think at the top end, it's how do we translate that amazing audience into people attending regularly our Super League and Championship and women's club football and in 2017, you launched quite an ambitious game plan for growth for women's football when you took over. It yeah. is, is, so is what you're talking about a continuation of that strategy? Where does that hope to get to? Yeah, the, the first strategy that you're talking about has, has a lifeline that finishes April next year. Uh, and it was about doubling participation, doubling the fan base and moving to a more successful international uh, position so that we could win the World Cup in 2023. Obviously, with Phil's appointment, we... Um, That's Phil Neville, yeah. Yeah, yeah. We were ambitious to win it in 2019. We will have achieved those objectives. And, you know, in many ways, we'll have exceeded them far more than we could have anticipated. And on this episode, we're talking more broadly about promoting a women's sport generally, so in football, but elsewhere as well. More broadly, what are the kind of things that you think need to be need to be done? You and I have talked about this many times. My my view is that unless we get a proper investment and structure for school, physical education and sport, whether it's football or any other sport, we're not going to have the foundation on which we can build. So for me, we had a period uh, where we began to build an infrastructure for school sport that was beginning to be the envy of the world. Yes. And then, you know, as you and I both yes. know, it, it disappeared but we have got to do more for school sport. We have got to embed, for not just sporting reasons, but for physical and emotional health reasons, we've got to embed physical activity and sport into young people's lives. The only place you're going to do that consistently for all young people is in school. And I, you know, I think physical literacy should be as important for our youngsters as literacy and numeracy. Why do we think it's not important anymore? It's more important than it's ever been. And do you think finally, Sue, this can be a turning point? I mean, we, we haven't had this kind of attention on women's sport, certainly not in my uh, memory. 
I mean, it's obviously disappointing that that we didn't win, but but this it feels like this could be a transformative moment if government, media, broadcasters, and so on step up, doesn't it? Absolutely, it does. And you know, we no sooner get home than the the World Cup netball starts in Liverpool. The women cricketers are playing the Aussies in a, a series right now, one day series. Our women's rugby players have done really well in the past. Our hockey players won gold in real. This has to be the moment when women's sport really gets the support that it absolutely, truly deserves. Um, and, and I hope we've played our part in, in making that possible. Well, you absolutely have, Sue Campbell. We're all incredibly proud of you and the team. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much. Thanks for the opportunity. Well, I'm delighted to say that we're now joined on the line by Christine Newhall, who is Assistant Professor of Kinesiology at SUNY Cortland, New York, and co-author of the Title IX blog. Thank you so much for joining us, Christine. You're welcome. So Title IX, tell our listeners about this. I've been obsessed with this for actually for some time. I think it was introduced in 1972. Can you just explain what what, what it is and what the impact has been? It's a federal law that uh, was part of the educational amendments, and it bans discrimination on the basis of sex in educational institutions that receive federal monies. Before we talk about its impact, maybe what was the context in which it came about? It's very much part of the liberal, what we currently call the second wave of feminism in the United States, which was attacking or addressing discrimination and inequalities in various structures and education, the educational institutions was one of them. Um, so the specific context in which it emerged was that the woman who was kind of considered the godmother of Title IX, who just passed this past year, Bernice Sandler, she had a PhD and she was looking for a tenure track position and she could never get one. And so she felt that she was being discriminated against on the basis of her sex and felt, one, that there should already be a law and was surprised to find there wasn't one. And so she worked with specifically with the Women's Equity Action League in the United States um, to get this law passed. And it did in 1972. So it was, it was meant to address discrimination more broadly. And Richard Nixon was president at the time. Correct. Yeah. <laughs> What impact has Title IX had on women's sport in the United States? I would say the biggest impact is the dramatic increase in women and girls playing sports. So um, according to the Women's Sports Foundation, their 2016 numbers, which are pretty pretty accurate still, um, there was a 545% increase in women playing college sports and a 990% increase in girls playing high school sports. That is amazing. We're obviously in the midst of the um, Women's World Cup of Soccer. It's certainly my perception as somebody who went to school at various points in the US is that, you know, girls' soccer was just a really much bigger thing. Is is Title IX part of that? Did it predate Title IX? There's pretty compelling evidence to show that the success of women's soccer in the, U- the U.S. is due to Title IX because it was, um, I would say, an easy sport <laughs> for colleges right. to add, right? Because what they needed was to get their numbers of participation opportunities right. more equitable with the men, and soccer is a relatively cheap sport. How interesting 
That's so interesting. I was discussing with my boys who are eight and ten, and that's what they said. I said, <laughs> right. you know, I th- we think that it might well be that this t- title lines had a being, but it's not. And they said, oh yeah, because you don't need so much equipment for 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 football or soccer, as you call it, uh, as compared to baseball or you know basketball or whatever. So what what more needs to be done then? Well, participation. We love those numbers, right? Uh, but girls and women's participation is still below boys and men's. And, you know, there's an argument that um, it's because girls are less interested in sports. And then, of course, the counter argument is, well, when society discourages girls, especially from playing certain sports like contact sports, you know, that sends a message to girls about what they can and should do. So it's society that's depressing those numbers, not certainly interest right or putting barriers in girls ways and do you think the uk i I know title nine doesn't do everything it sounds like but do you think the uk can learn from the us should we have a title nine here you know if the goal is to just increase participation overall for the purpose of merely participating in sports because we think that sports are valuable then yes a version of title nine which says, you know, regardless of how much it costs and regardless of what's popular, you need to provide equitable opportunities to boys and girls. Then absolutely. Uh, Christine Newhall, thanks so much for enlightening us on Title Nine. It's been it's been great to hear from you. You're welcome. So with us now in my loft, we have Katie Huey, who is founder of Hackney Laces, a community football club set up in 2011, and Kate Nicholson, who is head of insights and innovation at Women in Sport. Hello, both. Thank you for coming. Hello. Hi. Um, Kate, I thought we could start with you um, and maybe you can give us a sort of an oversight of what the current scale of the, the, the gender gap in sport at elite level and at grassroots level is. Yeah, so if we start thinking about it at grassroots level, it starts really young. Between the ages of 5 and 16, you've got 14% of girls who who reach the recommended activity level. So that's only 14. Now, that's 20% for boys. So there's definitely a gender gap there. There's work to do on both, I would say. Um, And by the time they get into teenage years, that drops to 10% of girls. So what we're seeing is that gender gap starting very early. Um, girls are not taking part in sport at that age, uh, at that younger age, and particularly not in team sport. Um, so that's where it all starts, and then that continues to. What, what are track the underlying time. reasons for it? It's really complex, actually. I think there's a number of different reasons. I think there's there's personal reasons. So society and gender stereotypes tend to put sport um, outside of girls' sort of natural DNA, if you like. So there is about challenging some of those stereotypes. Um, I think there's lots that happen going through puberty and when girls are growing up that are quite uh, negative and actually create a really negative feeling about sport. And I think that's something that's hard to change through life. I hear sort of 40 and 50 year olds often referring back to a experience they had at school that's me yeah (laughs) exactly and um, yeah experience they had at school and saying I'm not sporty and you think well that was 30 40 years ago so you know I think there's a lot of things that happen in that younger age group that we need to we need to change Um, if you look at the elite level uh, we did some work on um, sport in the media and only at the maximum level it was 10% of all sports coverage um, was women's sport um, and over 80% was men's sport. There was some mixed coverage, um, but that seems quite shocking, really, considering that you've got a population of 51, 49. You know, it doesn't seem to, doesn't seem to match up somehow. 
And does that that gap not exist not just in the the coverage on television, but in things like uh, uh, the pay gap as well and revenue from advertising? Yeah, I think women's sport. Um, we've heard that it was about point four percent of the sponsorship and investment um, of all investment. So that's the sort of level. That was a couple of years ago now. I think it has increased, but from a low base. So you're not getting the money coming into into sport in the same way as men's sport. And that filters down. That's not only at an elite level, but that filters down into the infrastructure and facilities and opportunities that girls and women have uh, at the grassroots level as well. But the advertising industry must have just had an enormous wake-up call in well, the last few yeah, weeks. Yeah, about time, I think, actually. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think, you know, it's been a bit of a surprise maybe to... Uh, uh, to to them, I'm not a surprise to me because I think you know we've always known that there's been hugely exciting sport for women going on. It just wasn't getting the scale, and I have to say credit to the BBC, they have put on all the games for the football, and you know the audiences they've had, you know, 11.7 million for that final uh, semi final was sorry, wishing it was the <laughs> final. Uh, <laughs> that semi final was absolutely staggering. Katie, can you tell us about Hackney Laces then? Um, uh, it, you, you set it up to give opportunities for girls to, to play football. Can you tell us a bit about the, the story behind it and what the spirit of it is? Yeah, so um, actually, Laces was formed not very far from here. So, Stoke Newington Common, I used to live around the corner and uh, I'd be coming home from my own football training and lots of girls would You're approach You're a serious me. football player. Serious? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm a weekend warrior. Right, right. <laughs> I love playing yeah. um, five aside, 11 aside. Yeah. But I'd just be training with my team, which was in Islington. I'd come home in Hackney and these girls would approach me and they'd say, where do you play? Can I play? I couldn't take them to my women's team. And so I got on the phone. I called around. I called all neighboring boroughs. I called the council. I spoke to different charities and I couldn't find a place for these girls. And they started growing. So at first it was two and then there were five. And then I said, well, I'm, I'm a licensed FA coach. I'll coach you in Stoke Newington Common. And then it kind of got to a point where it hit that scale where I realized like probably need liability insurance, <laughs> probably need to do something about it because there just wasn't a club as um, as Kate mentioned, yeah. that cohort of girls, there, there just wasn't what a place age, for them to play. What ages then play acne laces? Um, we take all ages because we need to get as many girls and women yeah. into sport as possible. But our our main uh, cohort is 13 to 17. And how many girls do you have playing there now? We have about 60. Amazing. And we can, we can detect a North American accent with you. It's the good one, not the bad one. <laughs> Thank um, you. I say this as someone who's married to an American. Um, <laughs> uh, do, do you think sort of women's football is is taken much more seriously? Well, I was so, going to ask. Yeah, did you play yeah. in school in, in yeah. Canada? Yeah. So um, Hackney Laces is not innovative. It's my childhood imported to right, the UK. Right. <laughs> Literally, I grew up with all the opportunities to play. I played mixed. Soccer was for everyone. It wasn't a thing that was gendered. It wasn't a thing that um, I didn't have the same opportunities. I went to university on a football scholarship. That's like a normal thing back home. Uh, and then I came here and I couldn't find a team to play for myself. And I and thought... has that always been a tradition in Canada, as far as you know? Um that, that girls play soccer and et cetera? Yes, culturally, um, active lifestyles are a big part of, I yeah. think, the Canadian. Yeah. We have space. Yeah. It's encouraged. Also, PE is mandatory in schools until you're 17. Mm. Right. And there is a difference. Just looking slightly yes. horrified. <laughs> 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 I just, I just always wanted a note from my mum. <laughs> 
Yeah, I mean, I think here, if you look at primary schools, you've not got um, specialist teachers, mainly in in primary schools, teaching sport. And I think that physical literacy needs to happen early. And I think girls don't have some of the outside opportunities to build that literacy. And then they're always on the back foot. So I think, you know, if, if they feel like they have to be the very best to actually get into these football uh, spaces with the boys, then you're getting far fewer girls moving forward. Well, your research focuses on the importance of changing perceptions of sport for teenage girls. I yes. think. What 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 what's that? What have you discovered in that research? Yes, I think one of the big things there is that I it, we often talk about girls as one group. What do we do for girls? And I think that is sometimes, you know, the difficulty because then we start to project what we think it is that girls want. So what we did with that research, we went right back to starting research from their lives and what's important in their lives to really get underneath the surface of how we can make change. So it's not about what the sport tweaks to make it a bit better. Um, So I think there's there's one big thing that was there is, is the spectrum that you've got. So by the time girls get to about 12 or 13, you've got some that have already disengaged completely with sport. They've just had a bad experience and they're just not feeling included in the whole sports uh, arena. You've got a group of girls who start to realise that actually it's only if you're good um, and they they fail to find where they can play for fun. Um, and I think the sports sector is probably pretty good at catering for that top end of girls who are sporty and there's lots of opportunities right. for them there. But where, where's that middle band? Right. How do we... We can't just take away barriers. It's also about inspiring them in a way that they feel that this is something they want to give up their free time to do. This is a kind of rather obvious point, but I guess it is worth making. The cultural expectation is still, isn't it? Boys are expected to play sport and girls aren't. Last night, I watched my partner run a 5K in Battersea Park. There were 15,000 people running it. And as people are coming through the finishing chute, the commentator was going, there's a woman, there's a woman. Oh my God, there's a woman. She's coming in at 20 minutes. And they spoke... Like, it was astounding because it was like, yeah, there's a woman, but she's fast for a person, not for a woman. Yeah. But it's so ingrained, I think, in our right. cultural psyche that it's it's not a space or not a thing that women do, that it's seen as like a specimen that this amazingly fast 5K runner came through. And, and, and also, you know, just... In the history, the FA banned clubs from allowing women to play on their grounds because football was unsuitable for females, and that ban was in place until 1971. Now, I know. You know, 1971 mm. is nearly 50 years ago now, but that's still that's still relatively recent history, isn't it? And you've got that you've got that sort of almost making right the wrong that's coming through. So you've still got people who perhaps are uh, uh, in clubs who can't see the world has changed and they're still harping back to that. If you look back in the 1920s and earlier, women's football was big. And through this kind of the legacy of the institutions banning women from playing, even though it was 50 years ago, you see it play out day in, day out on a grassroots level. Try booking a pitch. That is the hardest thing for me to do. So I'll call somewhere to book a pitch, be it at a school, a council-run pitch, a privately owned pitch. Let's put costs aside for a second. I'll be told we've block booked it for the next 12 weeks for a men's league. And you go, so there's, there's no evening bookings. No, there's zero. Okay. So how can I get a booking? Oh, you can have Friday at 10 PM for girls and women to play football. And it's because of these legacy bookings that go on and have been in there that that you just can't access the space. And then you're like, fine, we'll just go to the park. No ball games. (laughs) 
Like mm. the the provision of space in itself. And I recognize that we're in London, but that is one of the biggest things. And that wouldn't have happened in Canada. No, so you can you, play how, ball games anywhere. How do, how do you break that stranglehold then? You make good friends, you build a community around you, and you just never leave. It becomes a problem with scale, um, but with that, you kind of see what you can find nearby and who those allies are. Right. I mean, I think there's something really interesting about this, which is that it's the 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 stereotypes and the sort of discrimination stops girls and women from playing sport but then it also works the other way which is that the more in other words if you can get women and girls playing sport it also changes the stereotypes more widely i think mm. you know what i mean it's yeah. like there'll be some people listening to this who sorry to use you but i mean you're just not great doesn't like you know you're not like into sport that much and so you might <laughs> that much that <laughs> and you might and you might think well you know okay so that sounds bad but why does this you know maybe it just matters for sport and it's kind of an issue but but i actually i kind of instinctively feel it's got a wider implication for, for society as I, it like goes beyond sport we have a few principles of how we approach our sessions and our clubs. So Hackney Laces was the first, but we also have South London Laces and Limehouse Laces. One of our principles is wherever possible, play in public because people need to see you playing. Oh, they need right. to see you in parks. They need to see you in spaces. Some of our sessions require us to be behind closed doors because some Somali women who train with us don't want to be seen yeah, um, for their culture. Um, another one of those principles, though, is all three of our clubs have T-shirts that say this is what a footballer looks like. Oh, and that's everywhere amazing. There. Right. Yeah, because... Anyone can be a footballer. Anyone can look like a footballer. We give them out. I should have brought you guys some. Could you just mm. have one of those? Could yeah. you have one of those <laughs> it's just I mean, a challenge. I think I could be done under yeah. Trey's descriptions. Yeah. And I, I think was. you can really good. Yeah, and I think you can challenge them in so many ways. That is absolutely brilliant. I'm going to take that idea yes, and uh, yes. steal it with pride. Yes. Um, yeah, let's go to mass production. But I also think, I mean, we're doing a programme at the moment with daughters and dads. And again, it's another way of just looking at how we talk about stereotypes. So again, it's with dads with daughters under 10 and it's helping them get active, but also sort of really thinking about how strong their daughters are and rethinking how they can take part in sport it's just a way of them rethinking sometimes what their initial thoughts are because we often hear with dads it's like oh I really want a son to take him to the football so I can play football with him in the park and you know we just want them to sometimes think uh, with me, what about like, the rest oh no yeah. it was a, it's a son what if he would get <laughs> well exception maybe you're like doing your making your own contributions to breaking down the stereotypes of your, yeah. our society that's why I know we know why that's why you're doing it so we've heard in, earlier on about the US and title nine um, which ensures equal funding of sports for men and women. Do, do you think we should have something like that in the UK? It's interesting, isn't it, how long ago that was yeah, that it came yeah. in. So, you know, 72, you sort of think, has it taken us this long to actually think of yeah. anything like that? And you wonder if, if there's something even more positive that we can do because we do have to right the wrong. But really now, with what's going on in women's sport. Should it not be obvious that this has to happen? And what about different stages of women's lives beyond childhood and young adulthood? What what more needs to be done to sort of promote and encourage women's sport? Yes, and I think what we were saying was that what happens in those younger years actually can create a really negative feeling towards sport. We 
we see women badge themselves as sporty or not sporty. And um, proportionately, I think it's 20% of uh, them say sporty, yeah. uh, 20% ginger, 20% baby, 20% <laughs> scary. And 20, the yeah, yeah. They're abandoned the 90s. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Brown I got there after the yeah, second yeah, yeah. one there. Um, <laughs> but yes, I think then it's it's harder to actually create those opportunities and to encourage that motivation to to do that but there's different times in their lives when you've got that little window to do more so I think again when women have children themselves um, I think there's a real opportunity there for a bit of a virtuous circle of the girls and sons seeing their mums active is really positive and equally seeing their children active can have a an effect there so we see a big dynamic with mums and daughters with dads and daughters and also it's the whole family because I think the boys and the sons and the dads are all part of the solution. I'm now worried that we're re- reinforcing the stereotypes in my family. Well, you haven't got a daughter. No, no, but it's like me and the boys go and, you know, we watch the cricket or the right. football. Actually, Justine was saying to me that she had the sort of ultimate feminist dilemma because the lionesses were on in one of the earlier rounds and it was quite late. And so the children saw it as a way, as sort of partly as a ruse to get sort of, you know, Kind of crash through bedtime, <laughs> and she, if it had been a men's football match, she would have said no. But she thought, well, I can't really say no because here I've got my two boys, eight and ten, who are wanting to watch the lionesses, you know, past their bedtime. So I've got to say yes. And, and there's the added advantage, up. isn't it? You <laughs> yeah. know, there's all sorts of opportunities uh, to exploit. Uh, so we have a thing on the podcast called uh, the, the Jeffocracy, where I am the benign ruler setting aside my lack of sportiness if if i was to make you join you're not realizing how bad this yeah, is the male I patriarchy know. here we are talking about it's not just you haven't just got a sort of dictatorial problem here now you've got a sort of male patriarchy kind of you know defcon 5 but here I'm not, I'm not fulfilling any stereotypes i'm helping i'm part of the oh, solution I see. right okay fine. Yeah. if i was to make you joint ministers for for sport what is the first thing you do on day one with regards to uh, women and sport Well, a big one is on the visibility piece. So, again, referring back to my home nation, um, in Canada, this is going to sound quite provincial, but 60% of radio um, has to be domestic. So you have to play Canadian artists, and that's why you have... Justin Bieber, Celine Dion, Shania Twain, oh, loads of famous Canadians. Can we not concentrate on Sorry. Arcade Fire and Leonard Cohen? <laughs> oh, yeah, <laughs> that would have been a lot cooler. <laughs> How interesting. Um, but in terms of broadcast, BBC played all the games, yeah. which was amazing, but it was free TV. You have viewership mm. numbers up really high yeah, because it's free. Million, yeah. So people can watch it because they don't need certain things to be able to see that. But also you're getting to see more and it's not in competing with the Premier League. And I think there's something to be done around viewership and allowing that to play out and representation in the media. For me, I think it's about some investment, but it's not, I think it's an investment across schools and local authorities. And we were here from Katie, if you can't, if there's all this momentum now and girls wanting to play football, wanting to play other sports, we've got netball next week. If we haven't got, the facilities there for them to play and we haven't got the coaches there to coach them it's going to wane again so mine would be that investment into making sure that facilities in school and outside school have a uh, more of a an equal footing for for women and girls brilliant kate nicholson and katie huey thank you so much for joining us thank you what do you think then 
Well, as you know, sport isn't my thing. I, I feel very ill-informed. Well, on that's the okay because you're generally. demolishing the gender stereotypes. We've established that. Yes. You're, you're you're doing your bit. But you know, I always think representation is enormously uh, yeah. important. And as you got at before, it spills over beyond just the confines of, of sports. So, yeah. um, I, I just think it's exciting. I think it, you know, as I said at the beginning of the episode, it was exciting to get into a London black cab and have the driver say to me, uh, "You're watching the match tonight, talking about women's." football that feels like progress to me i mean it feels like there's a long way to go though you know the media you know the bbc have made progress but only 10 percent. this thing about the pitches that katie was saying you know i mean that's a, i mean that's just that's just a problem i mean i really hope it is a moment because i think i, I honestly think this has wider implications on people who are just enthusiasts about sport or want women to be able, able to have access to sport it's you know unless if you leave corners of of your country where there is still significant gender discrimination, then I think it sort of has a contagion effect on the rest of your country, if you see what I mean. And that's why this stuff really matters. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Let us know what you think. Have you been inspired by this year's uh, Women's Football World Cup? Have you got ideas around women's sport? Have you got experiences you can share with us? Uh, do email us reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at cheerfulpodcast or you can uh, you can find us on Facebook. Our page is facebook.com stroke reasons to be cheerful podcast. Uh, this um this first one comes from James Thomas, and it's about last week's episode on electric vehicles. Well, lots of response on that. Yeah, I did, loads and loads. I had an interesting tweet, actually, which I couldn't find. I was just scrolling back, but it's gone too far back in my uh, timeline, about the waiting time for an electric vehicle. That's something I'd oh, like really? to find out a bit more. It's like somebody who really wanted to buy one. Interesting. But, the, the you know, you you can't just interesting. go in a showroom and buy all of them. I'm sure there are exceptions. Well, anyway, Jaguar anyway. Land Rover's just announced today they're building electric cars That's in great. the UK. So. Yeah. Um, anyway, lots of response to that. This comes from James, who says, uh, I really enjoyed the recent podcast about the topic of electric cars, especially because I'm obsessed with cars. And this is what got me thinking. People who love cars are known as petrol heads. But what would they be known as if the world contained only electric cars? Vault brains? That's good, vault brains. Electron nuts? Mm. Cable noggins? Mm. You think he started well with vault brains and then... Vault brains is good. Okay. Don't you think? Yeah, I do. Very much. I, I like cable noggins. It's um, sort of got me thinking now, so anyway. Mm. Secondly, a new EU law uh, that has recently come into place states that electric vehicles should make a sound... So uh, so they can be heard by pedestrians. As electric cars are silent, we have an opportunity to choose the noise our vehicles make. Personally, I would go for a Star Wars TIE fighter or perhaps even a melodic, continuous Ed Miliband. Uh, can you give us an uh? uh. <laughs> Imagine that on a loop instead of a car engine. Spark plug? Yeah. Do they make a sound? Oh, I see you're back on the things, aren't you? Yeah, yeah but you have spark plugs in petrol cars. Yeah, don't you? yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's a, I still think. What's an electric thing? Electricity. Come on. You keep yeah. thinking battery. Battery. Oh, battery. You, you keep thinking. I'll read out the rest of the email. Yeah. Okay. Um, he says, What would you both choose as your electric car sound effect? Oh, this is a good question, isn't it? I'd have ice cream van chimes, I think. Would you? Yeah. So it's yeah. like a ringtone thing, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, because maybe, maybe that's what it'll be become in the future. I think I'd choose, choose Edith P.F.'s Je ne regret rien. <laughs> oh, 
Oh, je ne regrette rien. Don't you think you'd be great if you were driving down the road? I, I, I think that being played. I think it would, but if it was your, oh, your, your version rien. rather than Edith Pia. Right, okay, yeah. fine. Uh, uh, he says, uh, um, I have no doubt that the future is bright for the car and that petrol heads have lots of reasons to be cheerful. No I think people should email name. us in about what they would exactly, choose. Yes, yeah, Don't you yeah, think? Yeah. I think we, we, this is like, we're setting off a whole new, like, you know, cul-de-sac. Uh, right, this one comes from <laughs> Nile Rodgers. Nile uh, Rodgers. Freak out! Um, because that's a pop song. Uh, <laughs> uh, hi both, I enjoyed the most recent episode on electric vehicles. Uh, I live in a flat with no off-street parking. I'd like to get an EV, but there's nowhere I could keep to charge it. What can we do to solve this? Fast charging, I think, is the thing. So, you know, you go to a petrol station, you fill up in five minutes. I think we're heading towards, the you know, like 10 minutes like fast charging oh god i'd love to be able to do that on my phone do you think they can introduce that as well yeah well there are supposed to be those things that really mm. uh one other problem i find is the used car market for evs is tiny especially for new models with increased range and we know about range anxiety uh, the only option is to buy new uh, a friend and i were discussing the environmental impact of scrapping perfectly working cars to buy an ev is driving an older internal combustion engine car a few more years until it's the end of its life better than scrapping it early and buying an EV that is costly to produce in terms of materials, energy and emissions. Would love to see any studies. That's a good, really good point, actually. Uh, somebody was also emailed in saying, couldn't you convert existing cars that we'd really missed out something important? But so, so there's lots, lots to talk about. Finally, I drive to work because it's much cheaper over the year and faster than an annual train ticket. Well, that is definitely uh, a problem. The car has the added bonus. I can go anywhere else. I want any time. Public transport would have to dramatically fall in price to make it financially sensible if we should get rid of the car. I think a lot of people are in the same boat. Thanks and keep up the good work, Nile. And we received this email from Amy, uh, who says, Hi there, I just wanted to send a massive thank you. I'm an avid listener, never missing an episode yet. The last one on GDP was fantastic. As a single mother with two young children, I work really hard to make a good life for us. A couple of years ago, after being disillusioned with the glory of money, I was working too hard and missing out on anything that gave me a sense of well-being. I realised that a life worth living comes from more than just cash. So many studies have shown that money alone cannot solve all problems. Lottery winners only have a boost in happiness for the first three months after a windfall, and uh, as well as only incomes of up to 40k a year show a correlation with happiness, and all additional value after that income threshold is purely monetary because the individuals share no additional happiness themselves i love the idea of modeling the goals and ambitions of a society on the betterment for all and she finishes say by saying anyway not to ramble but i also wanted to say that from listening to this podcast and admittedly other influences i've changed my degree pathway to public health from september we're having an impact yes we're having an impact Email us, reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter at Cheerful Podcast or search for our Facebook page, Reasons to be Cheerful Podcast. And here with some ideas which could be potential reasons to be cheerful, comedian Robin Morgan. Hello. Hey. Hello. And uh, you're about to go to Edinburgh and then, did you just tell us two days after Edinburgh, you have a a baby on the way? Uh, Ten days, which uh, makes it sound slightly less exciting, but it's still quite tight, isn't it? It's still quite a close-knit thing. So hopefully the due date is absolutely correct but if not i'll have to get on a plane and fly back home so your partner won't be in edinburgh so she's going to come up with my son for the first 10 days and then on my day off i'm going to take them down to london on the train fly back up and then my mum and her mum are going to split the time the rest of the fortnight 
We've we've got contingency plans. You look, you both look incredibly worried. It's going to be fine, hopefully. Um, but yes, she's. Uh, Have you thought about I mean, what? Jeff will be there to deliver? Oh no, your wife won't be there to, for Jeff to deliver the baby. But yeah. if you can get on a plane and come to London yeah. and deliver the yeah. baby, yeah. I'd, yeah. I'd yeah. be happy with that. You're available for that, aren't you? Hugely. Yeah. You're so multitasking. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, after after my son was born, I did briefly have the thought that maybe I'd like a career change and become a midwife because I found the whole thing so beautiful and and just the the you know the job that the midwives yeah. do is so incredible. And then I just thought I'm incredibly squeamish and can't be doing with the sight sure. of blood, so it's probably not the job for me. Yeah, I mean, you could just sort of stand in the background and get a lot of praise, but not sort of do anything. That's what. That's my approach to life generally. Sure, okay. <laughs> generally trying to do. Um, have you thought about what would happen if you, you, I mean, will you have a some kind of vibrate alert on your phone? What if your wife went into labour while you were on stage? I mean, what an ending to the show. That's, that's, <laughs> that's me running off, isn't it? No, my um, my friend Katie is doing my tech, so uh, my wife has her her number. And yeah, we'll just have SOS sort of signals. And, and will you tell the to, audience in advance? I don't this, think this might so. Happen. I might just run away into the sea and just sort of <laughs> and see how people think. They'll about think the it. show's been going badly. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Sort of... Yeah, it'd be a good thing to have that. It would to say that to the audience in advance. I might get a message. Yeah, that my yeah, wife, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then if it is going badly, you could give your technical person <laughs> yeah, yeah, the absolutely. nod. And then yeah, let's get protect- yeah exactly. Yeah. I think um, if I uh, if I do have to cancel the run halfway through, I'm going to film the show in the first few days, and then if people turn up, I'm just going to sort of play the video. <laughs> and because I'm doing a free fringe thing, they can still put money in the bucket because they're now paying for the upkeep of my second child. And what is the show? So it's about uh, my dad and my son, and about male role models um, and toxic masculinity and that kind of stuff. So you you're not accusing either your dad or your son of toxic masculinity. No, my dad is I think the role model. I think is he's, he? Yeah, I think so. He's a he's a lovely man, and my son is too. So he, there's nothing yeah, toxic, toxic about him yet. But well, hopefully, why is your dad a role model? He's just he's just wicked. He's uh, he's sort of so born in uh, the valleys in 1953, and I think his life could have gone down a path of sort of quite turning into quite a sort of toxic man, but to various things it didn't, and he's just been a yeah, he's a lovely man. And a lot of comedians my age to kind of do a sort of, quote, dead dad show, where their dad has just passed away and they sort of talk about their father in this kind yeah. of love letter. And I thought it would be a nice idea to do while he's still live around. Live dad. Yeah, yeah, live dad show. Robin, you've brought along some ideas. Yes. Uh, let, let's have the first one. Into, there's been a lot of debate about all-male presenting sort of teams and things like that. This isn't... I mean, I know you, you feel quite seen here. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I think I think that's okay if there are all-male presenting teams. But uh, they, should be, they should promote a kind of... Um, a positive male sort of friendship or bonding. So that's what, that's what we do. Well, absolutely, yeah. this is it. <laughs> I hope that we did a high five and missed. Yeah, it's just a little, a little thing that we've got going. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think there'll be a whoosh sound. It'd be yeah. fine. It'd be great. Um, so uh, I think there are like obviously uh, you guys. This there are examples of that, but I think certain shows could be kind of slightly tweaked to to make it slightly more positive. You think about shows that perhaps could be you know just off the top of my head, maybe about cars or cooking. Sure, yeah, right. I, think, I think cooking sort of MasterChef is one where they're quite sort of like it's food, but they're blokey blokes. Whereas I think you know if they, if they present the judges, John and greg the food at the end of the episode like john should have to like feed the greg the food just like in a really sort of t- tender way just like really hugh edwards just holding thomas schaffernacker's hand ed and i have done that thing where we've eaten spaghetti but had, beautiful at the end of a strand each great yeah. but that- <laughs> i'm sure that was lovely yeah, i'm in favor of showing my feelings but not, yeah. your, spaghetti. not, my spaghetti. not, not your saliva <laughs> uh, uh yeah that that's good actually well we are quite i mean just to sort of 
display our wokeness for a second. <laughs> we're quite conscious that we're two men, aren't we? Yeah, and like we, we'll never have an episode. We never have yeah. an episode where it's just other yeah. and yeah. other fellas. I would you manals, know. no yes. manals. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. But I mean, I think so. So, do you think there's kind of an excess of this kind of blokey? Um, I think less so now. I think it is getting better, but I think equally as kind of, um, you know, there was something in the news relatively recently about ITV banning all male, not banning, but like making sure that all of their writers' rooms for comedy shows weren't all men. And that kind of got twisted into, they ban the men from being in here. Whereas I think there's, you know, definitely a step forward in terms of making things more equal. But I think as a result of that, certain people are doubling down on their kind of masculinity and it's seeming becoming a bit of a sort of... Mass, like gen- gender right war. yeah 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 there's also a problem as well in in some of the uh, male female presenting teams with the roles when sure. the woman is just there to sort of simper a little bit you're and, just boys yeah that kind yeah, of yeah, like yeah. waggy finger thing yeah. yeah i think um yeah i think it'd be good because uh you know tv and radio and podcasts and all media it's, it's good to see this kind of representation you know if you don't have it in your own life it's important to see it and hear it in other Good. We'll definitely buy that. Yes. Uh, What do you have next, Robin? Uh, The next one is, I think we should put more money into uh, the arts and music, specifically so that one day someone within Britain can write a Hamilton-style musical about Ed Miliband. Oh, I love it. I mean, I'm tempted to have some uh, music lessons myself, so I could do it. This is it. This could start here. I wonder if I should absent myself for this part of the discussion. Yeah. (laughs) I think it'd be great. I think future generations... Samuel Miliband. Yeah. (laughs) It works. Yeah, it, it works. It works. I've thought about this. It yeah. definitely works. Lin Manuel Miranda might be available. <laughs> I mean, he's not returned any of our emails. <laughs> no, this could be it, though. This so could be the little you, missing you've piece seen of puzzle. Hamilton, I take I've it. seen it. Yeah, I listened to the soundtrack a lot before I saw it, and then uh, me and my wife went a couple of years ago. Did you enjoy it? I thought it was spectacular. I mean, far too expensive, ridiculously yeah. expensive, as it is all theatre. Nice to have Gordon Brown on yeah. your side. <laughs> this could work. Yeah, yeah. Edinburgh Festival next year. Let's Ooh, put it this on. This is good. Yeah. This I could work. something in this. Yeah, I think so. I mean, would you be up for a cameo as yourself? Uh, yes. So musical education in this country needs to improve dramatically so that we can... we can. We I can... think so. It's from sort of the, the earliest days. I remember sort of music lessons having a big Casio keyboard that we all just pressed the demo button on and it just sort of had some sort of hip-hop beats. But I think if we get in musical theatre and rap... Aside from yourself, Ed, is there a, a, a figure in British politics that you would enjoy seeing a, a modern musical about? Theresa May? Boris Johnson. I, mean, I think the Theresa May Johnson. thing more is of a sort yeah. of dan- an interpretive dance piece than a musical. <laughs> Through wheat. <laughs> or sort of Marcel Marcel sort of, kind of you know, <laughs> mime sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, All right. Well, yeah. Mil- Milliband the musical. Yeah. Okay. Well, we'll have that. Um, what Great. else have you got, Robin? Gender reveal party. So my wife, as we say, is is, is pregnant, and uh, we got asked if we were doing a gender reveal party. We're not, but I think um, I find them quite. I can't, I've never heard of this. So they, I've not really. I've sort of vaguely. It's kind so of, it's quite an American concept that I think we've sort of taken over a little bit. So basically, uh, I think the couple don't find out the gender of your. Um, 
new baby but you find so the doctor writes it down you pass it on to a friend your friend invites everyone else over to find out what you're having and they don't care and then they release pink balloons it was going to be a girl or blue balloons it was going to earn more and then that's kind of the (laughs) (laughs) that's the thing so i think these gender reports i find them quite smelly but i think if basically it's kind of paint or balloons i know did you know what the yeah, we know we're having a girl. You knew we were having a boy yes, too. Yes, yes, yes. We found yeah. out both times. I think just um, yeah, we without we, the party. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The party was the the scan. It's a bit weird. Did but, you find out in advance? Yeah, we didn't because we wanted to leave it as a surprise. Yeah, just in case that day wasn't exciting enough. Yeah. <laughs> like, what yeah. were we thinking of really? My idea is uh, if you want to throw one of these parties, they should rather than sort of balloons. Sometimes they really sort of paint or confetti. It should be the it should be paint, but it should be the paint that they chuck in. Um, or ransom money so it stains you for like 30 years so you've really got to find you've really got to know that you want to do this party because it will impact your life greatly I didn't why would you I mean (laughs) it's bizarre yeah I mean try no offence to any of the listeners who've done gender reveal parties yeah okay then Um, well I basically agree I'm not sure about these gender reveal parties. And Robin, did you have one more idea? I do have one more idea. So this is if, uh, if I'm going to say the B word, I apologise. If Brexit does happen, uh, I think we should unite the country and get everyone in the United Kingdom uh, leavers hoodies, like at the end of college, with all the names of like everybody who voted for everything and like all the architects <laughs> of it around and all that we can go around Europe and everyone can sign it. Like going to miss you, lol, France on the back of it and that kind of thing. Just so like, it's like I'm wearing a sweatshirt with like boris johnson's name on it uh yeah but very small like there's also also all the all the you're saying all the other european countries would would sign it yeah i think so there's a big sort of farewell the last day at school everybody signs your shirt your last did you not have that at your school (laughs) no um in the last day in the the european union we get all the other member states to to sign our shirts yeah i think so it's a nice nice bit of farewell it's a bit sort of dystopian not dystopian (laughs) a bit sort of bleak isn't it well it's like having a leaving do yeah i think so yeah, and we'd have them as sort of souvenirs. I guess so, as a, of a of a time. I mean, I hate to sort of, I hate to kind of tempt fate here, but I sort of fear you might be giving Boris Johnson some ideas. <laughs> He's going to produce. I mean, sort of, he doesn't you know, seem to have 40, any of his own. Forty million sort of you know Brexit Day sweatshirts <laughs> that everyone can wear, sort of souvenir. You know, get your souvenir oh, thing, money making scheme for the government. You can get a sort of you know. Uh, sort of, there'll be sort of some special kind of special collection. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Si- yeah. signed. Was there going to be ideas. a Brexit? There, there, there were, I think, Brexit. Was it coins or t-shirts with the with the original March date on that are now? <laughs> but also, wasn't there some Theresa May Brexit? <laughs> wasn't she going to buy a the Queen exhibition a yacht or, something? or something? Oh right, yeah, there was going to be a festival, wasn't festival, there? Festival, yeah, like the mm. festival of Brexit. Yeah, I'm not sure. I think it might still be. <laughs> It sounds hellish. (laughs) Yeah, we're not sure that your sweatshirts are really helping with this. I can't see it as a moment of national unity. The Brexit Brexit festival. When you when you see this pitch, you're gonna regret. (laughs) This is my dragon's den idea, and you've not gone for it, and you're gonna regret it. Yeah, but that is probably true, actually. Yeah. Yeah. All right, Robin, uh, thanks for, for coming uh, around to my house. Thank to you. share these ideas. Thanks for having me. Your show. What is the venue in Edinburgh? It's called the Pear Tree. It's on the Laughing Horse Free Fringe. Sounds great. Thank you. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Whoa, we're in the outro. Yeah, well, it's been um, Wimbledon fortnight. We're in the middle of Wimbledon fortnight. I know that means a lot to you. We've been doing talking about women in sport. 
Yeah, I, I don't really follow it. As Cliff Richards got up and sung a song, that, is that an annual That's event? That's only when it rains. It seems to rain less. The <laughs> um, and also they've got a roof, you know, retractable roof on the centre court. Um, you know, I, I, I've been to various sporting events in my life, but there's something about the atmosphere at Wimbledon. Wasn't wasn't there an incident with you at Wimbledon? Well, there was one, half a memory of you. Well, and there's one you've where, been photographed at Wimbledon. Well, there's one where I was uh, with the Andy Murray's first Wimbledon, where I got invited, and I was there with David Cameron, Alex Hamilton. There was, uh, you know, it's not the first time there was a sort of unfortunate picture taken of me, apparently looking contemptuously at David Cameron or Alex Hamilton, but I don't think I was really. That's <laughs> just my resting face. Uh, it was more like, "Where's my seat?" I think, right, yeah, yeah. Uh, than anything else. But actually, when I went when I was significantly younger and. Uh, um, I think I saw Boris Becker on Centre Court. And it was like a queuing up jobby, and uh, I, I, you know, I got on Centre Court, and it was. I remember thinking the atmosphere was just really amazing. Something sort of cauldron-like about it. I mean, do you not remember these sort of, you know, the 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 rivalries, the players of your youth, our youth, Martina Navratilova, Chris Evert, Billie Jean King, I remember uh, Boris names. Becker, Jimmy Connors, John I re- McEnroe. I remember Bjorn the names. Borg. Yeah, I remember. You know the poster of the tennis you player. Tennis? No, no, no. You obviously don't. Right. Okay. Well, uh, I'd like to thank. Sorry. You. you know the trouble is, you know, you're just such a jock, and I'm just such a nerd. Exactly. Revenge of the nerds. Uh, right. We'd like to thank Baroness Sue Campbell, uh, Christine Newhall, Katie Huey, and Kate Nicholson. And thanks to comedian Robin Morgan. And McCaution produces our podcast with uh, research from Joel Pierce and backup from Joe Kenyon. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. Uh, James Deacon made the idents at Seed Composer Music in the Art. Uh, there we go. We're done. He's been a bolt fiend. He's been a cable noggin. Not Vince. Uh, and these have been reasons to be cheerful. <laughs> <laughs>